You can get out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. We'll be back in the book of John this morning. Uh, But real quick, just two or three things that I wanted to mention before we start. First of all, I think that today represents one year uh, or about uh, that we have been meeting in here on Sundays, which is just hard to believe that it's been a whole year. I think it was the first Sunday in March last year that we gathered here for the first time. So just want to acknowledge that. We are so thankful for God's provision for us to be able to be in town, um, to have the amount of room that we have for people to spread out, to have classrooms. So just want to acknowledge uh, God's faithfulness to us Uh, over the last year in providing this place for us to be able to meet. Secondly, I just wanted to mention, uh, please, please consider joining us tonight for the member meeting. We hope you'll come. Uh, I think it'll be a good family time together uh, just to hear from a few people and probably not always going to be doing it at night, but we thought it would be good under the circumstances to spend some time together. So I just wanted you to hear that from me. Please, if you're a member of Hope, uh, come and, and join us tonight from five to six and let's just enjoy that time together. One more thing before we start this morning. So, I don't know uh, how you feel about the uh, uh, national debt situation, uh, but for the first time in, you know, probably any time I can remember, uh, it is fairly lucrative to have a lot of children. Um, And I just wanted to mention something to you in light of that. Um, I don't know about you, but I read in the Bible about the opportunities to be generous. And, you know, I don't have a lot of opportunities to be generous, you know. Got a, lot of, got a lot of money going out, you know, kind of matches the money coming in. Um, but it seems to me that God is providing us uh, in a way that maybe, you know, we wouldn't all approve of um, with an influx of money. And so I just want to remind you guys, we could even think of this, like maybe that's not the wisest use of money, um, but we can redeem that. We can all redeem that. And so we can use that as an opportunity that God is giving us to be generous. So I I just wanted to suggest this to you this morning. Uh, You know, in our household, we sort of, we like tithe from the normal 10%, we tithe the normal 10% from the normal, but we say when God, you know, gives us extra money unexpectedly, we give 20% of that just as a like, thank you. So maybe you're like, I have been praying to pay off this debt and God provided, is going to provide exactly the amount of money. Then that's great. I'm not looking to derail you. Maybe you're like, no, we're saving for something particular. I understand, but I'm just going to plant this seed that maybe this is God giving you an opportunity to be unusually generous to someone or to some organization, or just that he puts somebody on your heart that you've been thinking of. So, I mean, I would would just say we have missionaries that we support. Um, If you're looking for ideas generally, I know of two or three people, two or three families in the body who are, you know, have various needs at any one time, feel free to ask me. Um, If you're looking for a good organization, you know, I recommended that book, um, Safely Home, last week, and I know out of that book, it caused me and Erica to kind of look at ways that we might could donate Bibles to people who are in persecuted countries 
countries, so I've looked into that a little bit, if that's something that would interest you. So I just kind of wanted to plant that seed. I'm not saying to like write an extra check to hope by any means. I'm saying if, if God has been putting a need on your heart anyway, then let's, as Christians, sort of redeem this as an opportunity. And, uh, you know, what if Christians all over the country sort of use this as an opportunity to just be really in generous in unexpected ways? Um, so just thought I would throw that out there as maybe, a, maybe you've already thought of that, um, but maybe a different way of thinking about kind of what's going on in our society right now. All right, let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll begin with John chapter 8. Father, we do thank you, as our text this morning illustrates, that you are the God who redeems. You take bad situations and you turn them into glorious situations. You took a cross, the biggest injustice in the history of mankind, and you have turned it into something glorious. And you do that with our lives. And Father, we pray that you would help us to look for ways to redeem the sinfulness of our hearts, the sinfulness of the world around us, to look at how your spirit is working and to be sensitive those, to those things. Father, I pray that you would help us all to be a generous church. And I pray that the name of Christ at Hope Bible Church uh, would be exalted because of our generosity both to one another and to, to those outside of us who you may lay on our hearts to help. So God, as we approach this passage, this, this glorious passage today, I pray that you would remind us again and again of what it means that you have redeemed us uh, from the sinfulness of our lives, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there are things that sound too good to be true. You know, the email from that person in Nigeria who wants to give you $15 million if you will just give him your bank account number, the all-expense-paid vacation if you will just sit and listen to a sales presentation, never turns out as good as you think it's going to, homemade ketchup, always sounds like a good idea, never is. Heinz is actually fine. Always disappointed. Sounds too good to be true. So we're back in John this morning, and we're picking up with a story that frankly sounds too, bit, too good to be true. At, at, at face value, chapter 8 is this famous story about this adulterous woman and Jesus. Does Jesus really forgive sinners? It's true. He does. It sounds too good to be true, but it is true. So first of all, unfortunately, we have to deal with the fact that this passage, if you look in the Pew Bible, if you have an ESV, this passage is kind of set apart. Mine has double brackets. Right above mine, it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Um, if you have an NIV Bible, it's in italics. Uh, most Bibles, I think, just kind of set it off in, in some way. Um, you may remember back in chapter 5, the ESV leaves out chapter 4 altogether. I mean, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. That was the, the verse about the angels stirring the waters. 
And it's just, it's just not there. It's down in the footnotes. But you'll notice that they left this passage in, even though it says the earliest manuscripts do not include it. So, is this passage actually too good to be true? Does it belong in the Bible? Should we skip this one like we did chapter 5, verse 4, and keep going? And I believe the answer is no. And I'm going to preach this account this morning as God's Word. Let me just take a moment to explain why this is different than verse 4 in chapter 5. Um, D.A. Carson, he's a well-known theologian. You may have heard of him. He's at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School just out of, outside of Chicago. He has written a commentary on John. It's an excellent commentary. I've relied on it quite a bit uh, as we've been going through John. He lists these things, just a, a couple of three things here, that is why people think it doesn't fit here, okay? Number one, these verses really are absent from some of the earliest Greek manuscripts, okay? Um, secondly, all of the church fathers omit this narrative entirely, and they skip from 752 down to 812, which you'll notice if you just go through and read it, it actually reads kind of smooth uh, if you do that. And then there are some textual reasons to doubt that John wrote it. Uh, there are words and expressions and maybe even some just ways of saying things that aren't found in the rest of this particular gospel. But, importantly, they kind of sound like Luke, okay? So, let me give you a quote from D.A. Carson, and we're going to move on from this. D.A. Carson says this, On the other hand, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred even if in its written form it did not belong in the beginning in these canonical books. Similar stories are found in other sources. The narrative before us also has a number of parallels with other stories in the Synoptic Gospels. In other words, we're going to say this. John probably didn't write this, and it probably didn't fit originally, sequentially, at this spot. But we have good reason to believe that it did happen and that uh, it's, it's there, and so we're going to consider it this morning. And if you want to get down and geek out about textual criticism, let's go have a cup of coffee, but we'll leave it there for now. All right? So we are going to treat this this morning as if it was the Word of God. We're going to continue to work all the way through here. Okay? All right. Hopefully that doesn't confuse you uh, more than you already were, but I thought I would cover that just in case. All right. So Jesus was a friend of sinners. And one of the reasons that this passage is so beloved is the fact that it does teach us that Jesus truly is a friend of sinners, like we sang earlier. You may remember that Matthew, who wrote the first gospel, was a tax collector. Tax collectors were despised by the Jews and especially by the Pharisees. And rightfully so. Listen, Matthew was not a good guy caught in a bad system. He was a bad guy, and he was enjoying the fruits of a bad system. He got rich by taking other people's money, and especially by taking poor people's money, because he was a tax collector. 
Right after Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, Matthew invites Jesus to his house. It's a famous passage in Matthew 9. Jesus reclined at the table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. So this was scandalous. Pharisees were not friends with sinners. In their mind, the righteous were blessed, and the sinners were cursed. And there wasn't much more to say about it. And so when Jesus goes and he actually sits with sinners and he eats with them in this like intimate fellowship with sinners, they are shocked. And he touches them and he talks to them. Now, a couple of necessary points, because you might hear this verse a lot these days. I just want to mention a few things. He didn't sin with them, okay? When the Bible says that Jesus was a friend of sinners, he was not sinning. Some people, Christians, want to turn these kind of passages into, like, license, that Christians should just sort of go and be a part of the sinful world, sort of do all the things they do so that we might be, you know, witnesses out there somehow as we participate in the ungodliness. Jesus did not do that. He lived righteously among them. He loved them. He taught them. He talked to them. And they responded to him. But it wasn't because he was sinning with them, all right? Seems obvious, but worth clarifying. Secondly, just to be clear, Jesus did not spend all of his time with sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. Some people will say, well, you know, what are you guys doing in here? Jesus was always out there with the sinners. He was sometimes with sinners. He was sometimes with Pharisees. We've seen him talking to Nicodemus. Sometimes he was with his disciples. Sometimes he was with his family. And you know, since everybody but Jesus is a sinner, it's fair to say Jesus spent all his time with sinners, all right? But not necessarily always tax collectors, prostitutes, sort of the worst of the worst. He loved everybody. And anybody who wanted his time, Jesus was happy to give them his time. Now, we've already said the fact that he spent this time with all of these sinful people, absolutely enraged the Pharisees, and they hated him for it. He was sort of undermining their, like, system of separation, this, like, blessing for the good, curses for the bad. And that's why Pharisees, uh, even still today, like to sort of live separate. Like, if we can just sort of call out that separation, it's an important distinction, right? If, you know, if, if this person is worse than me and they do worse things than me, then I can feel more godly and more better than them, all right? By the way, there's a difference between legalism and Phariseeism. Legalism says, I do these good things to earn my salvation, all right? Phariseeism says, I do these good things so that everybody can think that I'm really good and look at me and think I'm righteous. There's probably some overlap there, but they're not exactly the same thing. And let me also say this. Phariseeism isn't limited to religion. And we see this a lot today. Many good 
many people today, I should say, are taking sort of self-righteous positions for the sake of letting everybody see how good they are. Those who disagree with me are bad, and we see this all over the place. This makes Pharisees feel better. We see COVID Pharisees and social justice Pharisees and global warming Pharisees. I'm learning that there are like pet Pharisees. Like there's a way to treat a dog and there's a way to not treat a dog, and I will not spend time with you if you treat your dog like this. There's education Pharisees. And social media has really made it easy to be a Pharisee. Because it's easy to, you know, take a picture of yourself and show how righteous you are in some kind of act. And it also makes it easy for us to call other people out for their sinfulness and to feel very pharisaical. So there's obviously a streak in all of us that likes to be pharisaical. Sinful humanity likes to draw lines between the good and the bad. This makes us feel good about ourselves. So don't assume, when, when everybody, everybody likes to talk about the Pharisees as like bad people other than themselves, let's not assume that, let's say this, as we go through this story, be careful that you don't only associate yourself with the like sinful woman. Because maybe the Lord would have you see some of your Pharisaical tendencies as well as we work through this passage this morning, okay? All right, let's start to look through it. It starts at chapter 7, verse 53. Terrible chapter division. Uh, Verse 1, 53. (laughs) They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So if you remember from back in chapter 7, that was three weeks ago, Matt covered all of chapter 7 in one week. Jesus is back in Judea, and Judea is in the south. Judea is where Jerusalem is. Galilee is in the north. Judea is elite. Judea is New York City, okay? Galilee is like Ludowisi, all right? It's much more agrarian. It's much more simple doesn't mean they're like better or worse. It's just a different sort of way of living between Galilee and Judea. So Jesus comes back to Judea in chapter 7 for a feast. And by the way, he's going to be there all the way till chapter 10. Okay. During the final week of his ministry, especially in record, as recorded in Luke, um, Jesus comes into the temple every morning, and then he goes back out to Bethany, and that's where he's staying every night, and he comes in and out, and he's teaching in the temple. That's kind of one of the, the reasons that people think that this may not fit here sequentially. Like, this fits better with that period of Jesus' life than it does with right here, okay? So just sort of throwing that out there. We can't be sure, but it makes some sense. And then once again, we find Jesus teaching the crowds. So the people come to Jesus, and he teaches them. And and this, this too, is so counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive for us today. Jesus taught, and they wanted to listen. And I think so many professing Christians, we all, we just need to spend more time listening to the word of Christ. His words are presented to us. And we shouldn't always assume that we understand everything that he said. All right, so two, the accusation. Verses three through the beginning of verse six. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some char charge to bring against him. So when Jesus was out in public, there was this constant humming in the background, and it was the Pharisees. We saw this in chapter 6. Remember, they were always murmuring and grumbling. And you, just, you can imagine that Jesus is just sort of always teaching and always aware of this, like, unhappiness that's just all around him on the edges. And they're always looking for a chance to accuse him or to test him, to condemn him. And so in this case, they bring him a woman caught in adultery. And it says that they place her in their midst. They put her in the middle. So they bring her into the middle. So there's, there's all the people that Jesus is teaching, and then there are these scribes and Pharisees, and they're standing in a circle, and this woman is right there in the center. They're not just condemning her. They're shaming her in public. And by the way, twice we are told in this, these three verses, twice we're told that she was, it says she was caught in adultery, and then it says she was caught in the act of adultery. And I mention that just because I think the author wants us to understand her sin is not in doubt, all right? The question here is not did she or didn't she. She has clearly committed an offense, and the law is clear, and justice requires death. And that, too, is not in dispute here. Let me read to you. This is Deuteronomy 22. Okay, so this is the law regarding adultery. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. And so their reason then in verse 6 is they are saying this to test him that they might bring some charge against him. There is so much wrong with this entire scene. Think about these things. How exactly was she caught in the act? Was this sort of some sort of like sting operation? You know, I, I read that this is during a feast time, and I think we've said before in here, Jerusalem swelled to literally hundreds of thousands of people. So there's all kind of things going on during the feast time, but somebody was on the alert, looking to find something. Secondly, where's the man? Deuteronomy 22 clearly states, you shall bring them both to the gate of the city. You shall stone them to death with stones. So this is not a crime that one commits alone. Did he just sort of abscond as soon as the situation was detected? Where is he? It's also likely that this is an example of hypocrisy and outright chauvinism. Was the man not going to be held to the same standard as the woman here? To me, it feels like a setup Perhaps a man was even chosen to carry out the deed so that Jesus could be so tested. If so, he was released when he had played his part. She was caught. The sin was clear. Justice must be done. Side note, by the way, 
Pharisees like to trap people. They like to trap people so that they can call people out. They like to shame people. They like to make an example of sinners so that their righteousness can be in full view. And once again, don't limit yourself to religious Pharisees here. There are Pharisees of all types today, especially regarding people who break society's rules. There is a question behind the question here. It's an old one, but in every generation, a lot of young people like to bring it back up again as if no one has ever thought of it before. They're saying, Jesus, how can God be both loving and just? That's the question. How does one harmonize God's justice and his mercy? Here's the trap. If God is just, this woman must die according to the law. This would upset the Romans because the Jews aren't supposed to be carrying out capital punishment at this time, so Jesus then becomes a usurper, but it also puts to rest this like idea of gentleness that he's spreading. God is not gentle. God is not loving. See, this woman deserves to be stoned. Or, if God is merciful, then what about the law? Look, everybody. Jesus is promoting law-breaking. You see, he is no keeper of righteousness. He ignores sin. By the way, this is your problem and this is my problem. This is our problem. What do we do about God's justice? The human race, every single one of us deserves to die. We are all condemned before a holy and righteous God. And yet, he is merciful. We are all a bunch of rebels gathered here this morning, and we are still alive. Why do we all still enjoy the blessings of his creation? Why were we not separated from him forever the moment we transgressed? We're here this morning, every single one of us, because God is merciful. Even if you are here this morning and you are still living in rebellion, apart from God, God's mercy has allowed you to be here. And what hope do we have beyond this life? Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Sooner or later, that death must be paid. Like this adulterous woman, we are all sinners, guilty and exposed before the God of the universe, and we are deserving of death. So what is the answer? How can God be righteous and save people? And the answer is the cross. God's justice is served in the death of Jesus, on the cross, in our place, God's mercy is poured out in his blood as it covers those who believe. We are all like this woman. We are all exposed. There's no question of our guilt. Our only hope is the mercy of God poured out on the cross. The cross in God's wisdom reconciles justice and mercy. Now, if you know this story, you know that the really good part comes next. Beginning at the second part of verse 6, 6b, as they say, 
Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. I love this. So while they're accusing her, he just kind of bends down starts writing on the ground for 2,000 years. Christians have been asking, what in the world did he write? By the way, this is the only time that we have any recorded evidence that Jesus ever wrote anything. So some say that he was writing texts from the Scriptures. Maybe he was writing Deuteronomy 22 or Deuteronomy 17. That's another one that talks about executing with stones. Others say that he was writing out the sins of those who were accusing the woman. He was looking at them and writing these things down. Here's the truth. We don't know. You can ask him one day. Maybe he was just doodling because he is being very dismissive of their accusations. I don't think it's realistic to think that he was writing their sins or writing Bible verses because if his goal was to convict their hearts... They're still accusing him, her, while he's writing. Consider this picture. Jesus, in the temple, surrounded by those he was teaching, writing on the ground, a woman caught in the act of adultery, ashamed and exposed, the scribes and the Pharisees demanding an answer over and over and over again. And we are told that Jesus stood up and he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he sat back down. So Jesus is actually quoting here from Deuteronomy 17. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put to death and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that no person who has ever sinned can carry out capital punishment. He is not saying that because the Bible clearly prescribes that capital punishment is to be the consequence for certain crimes. If you read through the law, you find it numerous times for various sins, that there is punishment by death. So human beings are to carry out the, the sentence of execution, and we are all sinners. So if Jesus was saying no sinner could ever carry out the, sinner, the, the, the execution, then we would, nobody could ever stone anybody. There are some who would say that Jesus here is using these words to justify just sort of ignoring sin. So he's sort of saying, leave the woman alone. We're all sinners. Therefore, no one is qualified to judge her. So please understand me. Jesus is not saying everyone is a sinner. Therefore, we can't hold this woman accountable. Jesus is being very specific. According to Deuteronomy 17, it's the witnesses to the crime who have to be the first to pick up the stones which means it's very hard to pick up the stones if you're also guilty of that sin. I believe Jesus is being very specific here. I believe he's saying, that's fine. If you haven't committed this sin, then you pick up a stone and you stone this woman. 
Jesus repeatedly called the Jews an adulterous generation. And obviously that's packed with a lot of meaning and they're certainly guilty of spiritual adultery, but I think there's good reason to believe that physical adultery was rampant as well. In his condemnation of moralism, Paul says to the Jews in Romans 2, he says, you who say one must not have committed adultery, you commit adultery. And then in James 4, James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Sexual sin, especially among powerful men, exists in every age and every culture, and often it is dismissed with a knowing wink. And in many cultures to this day, a woman faces greater legal and physical consequences that her paramour can just sort of slip away from. Perhaps like the very unknown man in this situation. I call number four the evacuation. Verse nine. If you don't buy my reasoning here about the response of his accusers to the, to the sexual sin in their own lives. Look at verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Those accusers who had come to shame Jesus and to shame the woman now leave one by one in shame. The oldest goes first probably because they have the most to be ashamed of. These are not brave men. These are cowards. No one says, I'm sorry, Lord, you're absolutely right. What would you do? What would you do if you found yourself in front of the Lord of the universe and you've just been exposed, convicted, and ashamed? 1 John 1, 9, great verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great promise. You have just been exposed in front of the Messiah. Stay, confess. He would gladly forgive. He would gladly cleanse. You know, Pharisees can repent too, but they slink away. And the whole crowd that has been brought to Jesus as a part of this uh, test is gone, except one person, the woman. She is still there. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, that's respectful, by the way, a very respectful way of talking to her. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus stands back. The accusers are gone. By the way, I don't see any reason to assume that those whom he was teaching are still there. He's still sort of teaching in this moment. Jesus never asks her, well, are you guilty or not? Her guilt is beyond question. He asks her about her accusers. There's nobody left to condemn her. And then there's this amazing statement, neither do I condemn you. How can Jesus say that? How can he be so merciful and yet keep the justice that is demanded by God's law? And the answer is the cross. And I think in this case, Jesus knows what he has come to do. He has come to suffer and die for sinners. So Jesus says those words, neither do I condemn you with the cross on the very near horizon. 
And the same is true of every single person who has ever believed. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. It's Romans 8.1. Unlike all those Pharisees, Jesus does not condemn you. It sounds too good to be true, but it is. Some, I think, would like to stop there. Look, Jesus loves sinners. True. But he's saying adultery isn't that big of a deal. Not true. Jesus is not saying, I don't condemn you because your adultery doesn't matter. He is saying, your adultery matters. You are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. And that last part is key. Because Jesus came to save sinners from their sins. He would not be saving us if he left us in our sin. Sin is so bad that Jesus had to come die on a cross. Sin kills. Sin destroys. Sin divides. God tells Cain all the way back in Genesis 4, you do not do well. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. Brothers and sisters, any presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that does not include turning from sin is not the gospel. The good news about Jesus is not that you get to go to heaven and you get to stay in your sin, as if that would be a thing. Your sin is killing you. And if your goal is to have Jesus and keep sinning, you are not understanding the gospel. I am a sinner. Jesus does not condemn me. Now I need to stop sinning. And I don't think that we let that sit quite as much as we should. We are very quick to follow up with the statement that sort of says, you know, but we all know we won't be perfect until after this life. And that's true. Praise God, that's true. The Bible does not teach perfectionism. But let's just hear Jesus' words and hold off on the buts for a second. From now on, sin no more. To a sinner, there's some freedom in that statement. And I think we miss that if we move too quickly to the excuses. Jesus isn't saying, now remember, no more sinning. He's saying, go, you are freed from that old lifestyle. And there's a difference. There's a difference there. Sinners need to hear the whole gospel. Forgiveness from sin and freedom from its chains. It's easy for us to see this woman as something she's not. And hear me out here. I think that there's sort of in the air that we breathe that would say, ah, she's probably just a very good-natured, good-hearted prostitute. She means well, but her life has taken a wrong term. She's a victim of a system that forces women into this kind of life. You know, if she could just catch a break, things would be different. But Jesus treats her with so much more dignity than all that therapeutic mumbo-jumbo. She was an adulteress. She was caught in the act. We are told that twice. It wouldn't be true to say that she couldn't help it. She wasn't an addict. She wasn't being forced to do something she didn't want to do. She did what she wanted. She was a sinner. 
And Jesus does not condemn her, and he bids her go and sin no more. Here's the point of the passage. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. If he didn't love sinners, he wouldn't love any of us. But Jesus is especially kind to those who see the depth of their sin. Jesus wants to save sinners more than sinners want to be saved from their sins. So we've worked pretty hard in here since Christmas, and we've struggled through some very glorious and profound teaching in the book of John. We've dug out what the Bible teaches about being a part of the church. But it's nice today to just take a simple message from a well-known story that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And if you see yourself as a sinner today, Jesus would say the same to you. He does not condemn you. Believe and sin no more. And we would love to help you with that. If you have questions, I would love to answer your questions. I would be happy to talk to you when you're done. Find one of the elder, other elders. Find someone sitting around you and just say, I want to know more about this no condemnation in Christ. Don't wait. God is merciful and patient, but he is also just. And none of us know when he may call us to account. And when he does, our prayer is that you would be found covered by that shed blood of Jesus Christ. I said last week that our goal is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but when the passage demands that we preach the gospel, we will always preach the gospel. And Lord willing, somebody's heart will hear, and they will fall down, and they will worship God as a result of the things that they hear. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this simple truth today, that Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners. Jesus Christ loves sinners. In Christ, there is no condemnation. It sounds too good to be true. And yet we trust in your word that it is true. Father, I pray that this truth would bear fruit in our hearts today. Father, if there are any in here who do not yet know you, I pray that they would see their sin, cry out for mercy, and hear those words for the first time. I do not condemn you. And Father, for those of us who have known you for a while, let us not get too comfortable with these things. Let us continue to be amazed that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Let us continue to dwell on the glory and the wisdom of the cross. In Christ, God is both just and merciful. And we praise you for that. We gather in the name of Jesus Christ today. Amen.